Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Armchair Survivalist Radio Show. My name is Kurt Wilson. I'm the Armchair Survivalist, and today is February the 7th in the year 2021. Welcome to my show. You can go to armchairsurvivalist.com, and you can uh, listen to the show there. Scroll down on any of those pages. It'll tell you all the different ways to listen to me. Now, as you know, I am doing a six-part series on the audiobook 1984 by George Orwell. When you're listening to it, I want you to pay attention to what he's saying and the environment that's there. You will realize that we are there and headed deeper into the abyss that is called 1984. At the end of this episode today, I'll talk for a little bit on some information that I think is vital. So here is the second part of George Orwell's 1984. From the table at Winston's left, a little behind his back, Someone was talking rapidly and continuously, a harsh gabble almost like the quacking of a duck, which pierced the general uproar of the room. "'How's the dictionary getting on?' said Winston, raising his voice to overcome the noise. "'Slowly,' said Syme. "'I'm on the adjectives. It's fascinating.' He had brightened up immediately at the mention of Newspeak. He pushed his pannikin aside, took up his hunk of bread in one delicate hand and his cheese in the other and leaned across the table so as to be able to speak without shouting. "'The eleventh edition is the definitive edition,' he said. "'We're getting the language into its final shape, the shape it's going to have when nobody speaks anything else. When we finish with it, people like you will have to learn it all over again. You think, I dare say, that our chief job is inventing new words, but not a bit of it. We're destroying words, scores of them, hundreds of them, every day.' We're cutting the language down to the bone. The 11th edition won't contain a single word that will become obsolete before the year 2050. He bit hungrily into his bread and swallowed a couple of mouthfuls, then continued speaking with a sort of pedant's passion. His thin, dark face had become animated. His eyes had lost their mocking expression and grown almost dreamy. It's a beautiful thing, the destruction of words. Of course, the great wastage is in the verbs and adjectives, but there are hundreds of nouns that can be gotten rid of as well. It isn't only the synonyms, there are also the antonyms. After all, what justification is there for a word which is simply the opposite of some other word? A word contains its opposite in itself. Take good, for instance. If you have a word like good, what need is there for a word like bad? Ungood will do just as well, but better, because it's an exact opposite, which the other is not. Or again, if you want a stronger version of good, what sense is there in having a whole string of vague, useless words like excellent and splendid and all the rest of them? Plus good covers the meaning, or double plus good if you want something stronger still. Of course, we use those forms already, but in the final version of Newspeak, there'll be nothing else. In the end, the whole notion of goodness and badness will be covered by only six words. In reality, only one word. Don't you see the beauty of that, Winston? It was B.B.'s idea originally, of course, he added as an afterthought. A sort of vapid eagerness flitted across Winston's face at the mention of Big Brother. Nevertheless, Syme immediately detected a certain lack of enthusiasm. You haven't a real appreciation of Newspeak, Winston, he said almost sadly. Even when you write it, you're still thinking in old speak. I've read some of the pieces you write in The Times occasionally. They're good enough, but they're translations. In, in your heart, you'd prefer to stick to old speak with all its vagueness and its useless shades of meaning. You don't grasp the beauty of the destruction of words. 
Do you know that new speak is the only language in the world whose vocabulary gets smaller every year? Winston did know that, of course. He smiled, sympathetically, he hoped, not trusting himself to speak. Syme bit off another fragment of the dark-coloured bread, chewed it briefly, and went on. But don't you see that the whole aim of Newspeak is to narrow the range of thought? In the end, we shall make thought crime literally impossible, because there will be no words in which to express it. Every concept that can ever be needed will be expressed by exactly one word, with its meaning rigidly defined and all its subsidiary meanings rubbed out and forgotten. Already, in the 11th edition, we're not far from that point, but the process will still be continuing long after you and I are dead. Every year, fewer and fewer words, and the range of consciousness always a little smaller. Even now, of course, there's no reason or excuse for committing thought crime. It's merely a question of self-discipline, reality control. But in the end, there won't be any need even for that. The revolution will be complete when the language is perfect. Newspeak is Ingsoc, and Ingsoc is Newspeak, he added with a sort of mystical satisfaction. Has it ever occurred to you, Winston, that by the year 2050, at the very latest, not a single human being will be alive who could understand such a conversation as we are having now? Except, began Winston doubtfully, and he stopped. It had been on the tip of his tongue to say, except the proles, but he checked himself not feeling fully certain that this remark was not in some way unorthodox. Syme, however, had divined what he was about to say. But the proles are not human beings, he said carelessly. By 2050, earlier, probably, all real knowledge of old speak will have disappeared. The whole literature of the past will have been destroyed. Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, Byron, they'll exist only in new speak versions. Not merely changed into something different, but actually changed into something contradictory of what they used to be. Even the literature of the party will change. Even the slogans will change. Hmm? How could you have a slogan like, freedom is slavery, when the concept of freedom has been abolished? <laughs> well, the whole climate of thought will be different. In fact, there will be no thought as we understand it now. Orthodoxy means not thinking, not needing to think. Orthodoxy is unconsciousness. One of these days, thought Winston with sudden deep conviction, Syme will be vaporized. He's too intelligent. He sees too clearly and speaks too plainly. The party does not like such people. One day, he will disappear. It is written in his face. Winston had finished his bread and cheese. He turned a little sideways in his chair to drink his mug of coffee. At the table on his left, the man with the strident voice was still talking remorselessly away. A young woman, who was perhaps his secretary, and who was sitting with her back to Winston, was listening to him, and seemed to be eagerly agreeing with everything that he said. From time to time, Winston caught some such remark as, Oh, I think you're so right. I do so agree with you, uttered in a youthful and rather silly feminine voice. But the other voice never stopped for an instant, even when the girl was speaking. Winston knew the man by sight, though he knew no more about him than that he held some important post in the fiction department. He was a man of about thirty, with a muscular throat and a large mobile mouth. His head was thrown back a little, and because of the angle at which he was sitting, his spectacles caught the light, and presented to Winston two blank discs instead of eyes. 
What was slightly horrible was that from the stream of sound that poured out of his mouth, it was almost impossible to distinguish a single word. Just once, Winston caught a phrase, Complete and final elimination of Goldsteinism, jerked out very rapidly and, as it seemed, all in one piece, like a line of type cast solid. For the rest, it was just a noise, a quack, quack, quacking. And yet, though you could not actually hear what the man was saying, you could not be in any doubt about its general nature. He might be denouncing Goldstein and demanding sterner measures against thought criminals and saboteurs. He might be fulminating against the atrocities of the Eurasian army. He might be praising Big Brother or the heroes on the Malabar front. It made no difference. Whatever it was, you could be certain that every word of it was pure orthodoxy. Pure Ingsoc. As he watched the eyeless face with the jaw moving rapidly up and down, Winston had a curious feeling that this was not a real human being, but some kind of dummy. It was not the man's brain that was speaking, it was his larynx. The stuff that was coming out of him consisted of words, but it was not speech in the true sense. It was a noise uttered in unconsciousness, like the quacking of a duck. Syme had fallen silent for a moment, and with the handle of his spoon was tracing patterns in the puddle of stew. The voices from the other table quacked rapidly on, easily audible in spite of the surrounding din. There is a word in new speak, said Syme. I don't know whether you know it. Duck speak. To quack like a duck. It's one of those interesting words which have two contradictory meanings. Applied to an opponent, it is abuse. Applied to someone you agree with, it's praise. Unquestionably, Syme will be vaporized, Winston thought again. He thought it with a kind of sadness, although well knowing that Syme despised him and slightly disliked him, and was fully capable of denouncing him as a thought criminal if he saw any reason for doing so. There was something subtly wrong with Syme. There was something that he lacked. Discretion, aloofness, a sort of saving stupidity. You could not say that he was unorthodox. He believed in the principles of Ingsoc. He venerated Big Brother. He rejoiced over victories. He hated heretics, not merely with sincerity, but with a sort of restless zeal, an up-to-dateness of information which the ordinary party member did not approach. Yet, a faint air of disreputability always clung to him. He said things that would have been better unsaid. He had read too many books. He frequented the Chestnut Tree Café, haunt of painters and musicians. There was no law, not even an unwritten law, against frequenting the Chestnut Tree Café, yet the place was somehow ill-omened. The old, discredited leaders of the party had been used to gather there before they were finally purged. Goldstein himself, it was said, had sometimes been seen there, years and decades ago. Syme's fate was not difficult to foresee. And yet it was a fact that if Syme grasped even for three seconds the nature of his, Winston's, secret opinions, he would betray him instantly to the thought police. So would anybody else, for that matter. But Syme, more than most. Zeal was not enough. Orthodoxy was unconsciousness. Syme looked up. Oh, here comes Parsons, he said. Something in the tone of his voice seemed to add, That bloody fool! Parsons. 
Winston's fellow tenant at Victory Mansions, was, in fact, threading his way across the room. A tubby, middle-sized man with fair hair and a frog-like face. At 35, he was already putting on rolls of fat at neck and waistline, but his movements were brisk and boyish. His whole appearance was that of a little boy grown large, so much so that although he was wearing the regulation overalls, it was almost impossible not to think of him as being dressed in the blue shorts, grey shirt and red neckerchief of the spies. In visualising him, one saw always a picture of dimpled knees and sleeves rolled back from pudgy forearms. Parsons did, indeed, invariably revert to shorts when a community hike or any other physical activity gave him an excuse for doing so. He greeted them both with a cheery, Hello, hello, and sat down at the table, giving off an intense smell of sweat. Beads of moisture stood out all over his pink face. His powers of sweating were extraordinary. At the community centre, you could always tell when he had been playing table tennis by the dampness of the bat handle. Syme had produced a strip of paper on which there was a long column of words, and was studying it with an ink pencil between his fingers. Oh, look at him working away in the lunch hour, said Parsons, nudging Winston. Keenness, eh? What's that you've got there, old boy? Something a bit too brainy for me, I expect. <laughs> Smith, old boy, I'll, I'll tell you why I'm chasing you. It's the sub you forgot to give me. Uh, what sub is that? said Winston, automatically feeling for money. About a quarter of one salary had to be earmarked for voluntary subscriptions, which were so numerous that it was difficult to keep track of them. Uh, for hate week, you know, the house-by-house house fund. I'm treasurer for our block. We're making an all-out effort, going to put on a tremendous show. I tell you, it won't be my fault if old Victory Mansions doesn't have the biggest outfit of flags in the whole street. Two dollars, you promise me? Winston found and handed over two creased and filthy notes, which Parsons entered in a small notebook in the neat handwriting of the illiterate. Uh, by the way, old boy, he said, I hear that little beggar of mine let fly at you with his catapult yesterday. I, I, I gave him a good dressing down for it. In fact, I told him I'd take the catapult away if he does it again. I think he was a little upset at not going to the execution, said Winston. Ah, well, what I meant to say shows the right spirit, doesn't it? Hmm? Mischievous little beggars there, both of them, but talk about keenness. All they think about is the spies and the war, of course. Do you know what that little girl of mine did last Saturday? When her troop was out on a hike out at uh, Burke Hampstead Way, she got two other girls to go with her, slipped off from the hike, and spent the whole afternoon following a strange man. They, they kept on his tail for two hours, uh, right through the woods, and then, when they got to Amersham, handed him over to the patrols. What did they do that for? said Winston, somewhat taken aback. Parsons went on triumphantly. Oh, my kid made sure he was some kind of enemy agent who you know, might have been dropped by a parachute, for instance. But he is the point, old boy. What do you think put her on to him in the first place? Hmm? She spotted he was wearing a funny kind of shoes. Uh, said she'd never seen anyone wearing shoes like that before. So the chances were he was a foreigner. Hmm? Pretty smart for a nipper of seven, eh? What happened to the man? said Winston. Ah, uh, that I couldn't say, of course, but I wouldn't be uh, altogether surprised if... Parsons made the motion of aiming a rifle and clicked his tongue for the explosion. Good, 
said Syme abstractedly, without looking up from his strip of paper. Of course, we can't afford to take chances, agreed Winston dutifully. Well, I mean to say there, there is a war on, said Parsons. As though in confirmation of this, a trumpet call floated from the telescreen just above their heads. However, it was not the proclamation of a military victory this time, but merely an announcement from the Ministry of Plenty. Comrades! cried an eager, youthful voice. Attention, comrades, we have glorious news for you. We have won the battle for production. Returns now completed of the output of all classes of consumption goods show that the standard of living has risen by no less than 20% over the past year. All over Oceania this morning, there were irrepressible, spontaneous demonstrations when workers marched out of factories and offices and paraded through the streets with banners voicing their gratitude to Big Brother for the new happy life which his wise leadership has bestowed upon us. Here are some of the completed figures. Foodstuffs are just... The phrase, our new happy life, recurred several times. It had been a favorite of late with the Ministry of Plenty. Parsons, his attention caught by the trumpet call, sat listening with a sort of gaping solemnity, a sort of edified boredom. He could not follow the figures, but he was aware that they were in some way a cause for satisfaction. He had lugged out a huge and filthy pipe, which was already half full of charred tobacco. With the tobacco ration at 100 grams a week, it was seldom possible to fill the pipe to the top. Winston was smoking a victory cigarette, which he held carefully horizontal. The new ration did not start till tomorrow, and he had only four cigarettes left. For the moment, he had shut his ears to the remoter noises, and was listening to the stuff that streamed out of the telescreen. It appeared that there had even been a demonstration to thank Big Brother for raising the chocolate rations to 20 grams a week. And only yesterday, he reflected, it had been announced that the ration was to be reduced to 20 grams a week. Was it possible that they could swallow that after only 24 hours? Yes, they swallowed it. Parsons swallowed it easily with the stupidity of an animal. The eyeless creature at the other table swallowed it fanatically, passionately, with a furious desire to track down, denounce and vaporize anyone who should suggest that last week the ration had been 30 grams. Syme, too, in some more complex way involving doublethink, Syme swallowed it. Was he then alone in the possession of a memory? The fabulous statistics continued to pour out of the telescreen. As compared with last year, there was more food, more clothes, more houses, more furniture, more cooking pots, more fuel, more ships, more helicopters, more books, more babies, more of everything except disease, crime and insanity. Year by year and minute by minute, everybody and everything was whizzing rapidly upwards. As Syme had done earlier, Winston was taking up his spoon and was dabbling in the pale coloured gravy that dribbled across the table, drawing a long streak of it out into a pattern. He meditated resentfully on the physical texture of life. Had it always been like this? Had food always tasted like this? He looked round the canteen. A low-ceilinged, crowded room, its walls grimy from the contact of innumerable bodies. Battered metal tables and chairs placed so close together that you sat with elbows touching. Bent spoons, dented trays, coarse white mugs, all surfaces greasy, grime in every crack, and a sourish, composite smell of bad gin and bad coffee and metallic stew and dirty clothes. 
always in your stomach and in your skin there was a sort of protest, a feeling that you had been cheated of something that you had a right to. It was true that he had no memories of anything greatly different. In any time that he could accurately remember, there had never been quite enough to eat. One had never had socks or underclothes that were not full of holes. The furniture had always been battered and rickety. Rooms underheated, tube trains crowded, houses falling to pieces, bread dark-coloured, tea a rarity, coffee filthy-tasting, cigarettes insufficient, nothing cheap and plentiful except synthetic gin. And though, of course, it grew worse as one's body aged, was it not a sign that this was not the natural order of things if one's heart sickened at the discomfort and dirt and scarcity, the interminable winters, the stickiness of one's socks, the lifts that never worked, the cold water, the gritty soap, the cigarettes that came to pieces, the food with its strange, evil tastes? Why should one feel it to be intolerable unless one had some kind of ancestor memory that things had once been different. He looked around the canteen again. Nearly everyone was ugly, and would still have been ugly even if dressed otherwise than in the uniform blue overalls. On the far side of the room, sitting at a table alone, a small, curiously beetle-like man was drinking a cup of coffee, his little eyes darting suspicious glances from side to side. How easy it was, thought Winston, if you did not look about you, to believe that the physical type set up by the party as an ideal, tall, muscular youths and deep-bosomed maidens, blonde-haired, vital, sunburnt, carefree, existed and even predominated. Actually, so far as he could judge, the majority of people in Airstrip 1 were small, dark and ill-favoured. It was curious how that beetle-like type proliferated in the ministries. Little dumpy men, growing stout very early in life, with short legs, swift scuttling movements and fat inscrutable faces with very small eyes. It was the type that seemed to flourish best under the dominion of the party. The announcement from the Ministry of Plenty ended on another trumpet call and gave way to tinny music. Parsons, stirred to vague enthusiasm by the bombardment of figures, took his pipe out of his mouth. Ministry of Plenty has certainly done a good job this year, he said with a knowing shake of his head. Uh, by the way, Smith, old boy, I suppose you uh, haven't got any razor blades you can let me have. Not one, said Winston. I've been using the same blade for six weeks myself. Ah, well, I just thought I'd ask you, old boy. Sorry, said Winston. The quacking voice from the next table, temporarily silenced during the Ministry's announcement, had started up again, as loud as ever. For some reason, Winston suddenly found himself thinking of Mrs. Parsons, with her wispy hair and the dust in the creases of her face. Within two years, those children would be denouncing her to the thought police. Mrs. Parsons would be vaporized. Syme would be vaporized. Winston would be vaporized. O'Brien would be vaporized. Parsons, on the other hand, would never be vaporized. The eyeless creature with the quacking voice would never be vaporized. The little beetle-like men who scuttle so nimbly through the labyrinthine corridors of the ministries, they, too, would never be vaporized. And the girl with dark hair, the girl from the fiction department, she would never be vaporized either. It seemed to him that he knew instinctively who would survive and who would perish. 
Though just what it was that made for survival, it was not easy to say. At this moment, he was dragged out of his reverie with a violent jerk. The girl at the next table had turned partly round and was looking at him. It was the girl with the dark hair. She was looking at him in a sidelong way, but with curious intensity. The instant she caught his eye, she looked away again. The sweat started out on Winston's backbone. A horrible pang of terror went through him. It was gone almost at once, but it left a sort of nagging uneasiness behind. Why was she watching him? Why did she keep following him about? Unfortunately, he could not remember whether she had already been at the table when he arrived or had come there afterwards. But yesterday, at any rate, during two minutes hate, she had sat immediately behind him when there was no apparent need to do so. Quite likely, her real objective had been to listen to him and make sure whether he was shouting loudly enough. His earlier thoughts returned to him. Probably she was not actually a member of the Thought Police. But then it was precisely the amateur spy who was the greatest danger of all. He did not know how long she had been looking at him, but perhaps for as much as five minutes, and it was possible that his features had not been perfectly under control. It was terribly dangerous to let your thoughts wander when you're in any public place or within range of a telescreen. The smallest thing could give you away. A nervous tick, an unconscious look of anxiety, a habit of muttering to yourself, anything that carried with it the suggestion of abnormality, of having something to hide. In any case, to wear an improper expression on your face, to look incredulous when a victory was announced, for example, was itself a punishable offence. There was even a word for it in Newspeak. Face crime, it was called. The girl had turned her back on him again. Perhaps, after all, she was not really following him about. Perhaps it was coincidence that she had sat so close to him two days running. His cigarette had gone out, and he laid it carefully on the edge of the table. He would finish smoking it after work, if he could keep the tobacco in it. Quite likely the person at the next table was a spy of the Thought Police. And quite likely he would be in the cellars of the Ministry of Love within three days, but a cigarette end must not be wasted. Syme had folded up his strip of paper and stowed it away in his pocket. Parsons had begun talking again. Did I ever tell you, old boy, he said, chuckling round the stem of his pipe, about a time when those two nippers of mine set fire to the old market woman's skirt because they saw her wrapping up sausages in a poster of B.B.? <laughs> sneaked up behind her and set fire to it with a box of matches. <laughs> Burnt her quite badly, I believe. <laughs> Little beggars, eh? But keen as mustard. That's a first-rate training they give them in the spies nowadays. Better than in my day, even. What do you think's the latest thing they served them out with? Ear trumpets for listening through keyholes. My little girl brought one home the other night, tried it out on our sitting room door, and reckoned she could hear twice as much as with her ear to the hole. <laughs> of course, it's only a toy, mind you, still gives them the right idea, eh? <laughs> At this moment, the telescreen let out a piercing whistle. It was the signal to return to work. All three men sprang to their feet to join in the struggle around the lifts, and the remaining tobacco fell out of Winston's cigarette. Chapter 6 It was three years ago, 
It was on a dark evening in a narrow side street near one of the big railway stations. She was standing near a doorway in the wall under a street lamp that hardly gave any light. She had a young face, painted very thick. It was really the paint that appealed to me. The whiteness of it, like a mask, and the bright red lips. Party women never paint their faces. There was nobody else in the street, and no telescreens. She said, two dollars. I... For the moment, it was too difficult to go on. He shut his eyes and pressed his fingers against them, trying to squeeze out the vision that kept recurring. He had an almost overwhelming temptation to shout a string of filthy words at the top of his voice, or to bang his head against the wall, to kick over the table and hurl the inkpot through the window, to do any violent or noisy or painful thing that might black out the memory that was tormenting him. Your worst enemy, he reflected, was your own nervous system. At any moment, the tension inside you was liable to translate itself into some visible symptom. He thought of a man whom he had passed in the street a few weeks back. A quite ordinary-looking man, a party member, aged 35 to 40, tallish and thin, carrying a briefcase. They were a few meters apart when the left side of the man's face was suddenly contorted by a sort of spasm. It happened again just as they were passing one another. It was only a twitch, a quiver, rapid as the clicking of a camera shutter, but obviously habitual. He remembered thinking at the time, that poor devil is done for. And what was frightening was that the action was quite possibly unconscious. The most deadly danger of all was talking in your sleep. There was no way of guarding against that so far as he could see. He drew his breath and went on writing. I went with her through the doorway and across a backyard into a basement kitchen. There was a bed against the wall and a lamp on the table turned down very low. She... His teeth were set on edge. He would have liked to spit. Simultaneously with the woman in the basement kitchen, he thought of Catherine, his wife. Winston was married, had been married at any rate. Probably he was still married so far as he knew his wife was not dead. He seemed to breathe again the warm, stuffy odour of the basement kitchen. An odour compounded of bugs and dirty clothes and villainous cheap scent. But nevertheless alluring, because no woman of the party ever used scent, or could be imagined as doing so. Only the proles used scent. In his mind, the smell of it was inextricably mixed up with fornication. When he had gone with that woman, it had been his first lapse in two years or thereabouts. Consorting with prostitutes was forbidden, of course, but it was one of those rules that you could occasionally nerve yourself to break. It was dangerous, but it was not a life-and-death matter. To be caught with a prostitute might mean five years in a forced labour camp, not more if you had committed no other offence, and it was easy enough, provided that you could avoid being caught in the act. The poorer quarters swarmed with women who were ready to sell themselves. Some could even be purchased for a bottle of gin, which the proles were not supposed to drink. Tacitly, the party was even inclined to encourage prostitution, as an outlet for instincts which could not be altogether suppressed. 
Mere debauchery did not matter very much, so long as it was furtive and joyless and only involved the women of a submerged and despised class. The unforgivable crime was promiscuity between party members. But, though this was one of the crimes that the accused in the Great Purges invariably confessed to, it was difficult to imagine any such thing actually happening. The aim of the party was not merely to prevent men and women from forming loyalties, which it might not be able to control. Its real, undeclared purpose was to remove all pleasure from the sexual act. Not love so much as eroticism was the enemy. Inside marriage as well as outside it. All marriages between party members had to be approved by a committee appointed for the purpose, and, though the principle was never clearly stated, permission was always refused if the couple concerned gave the impression of being physically attracted to one another. The only recognised purpose of marriage was to beget children for the service of the party. Sexual intercourse was to be looked on as a slightly disgusting minor operation, like having an enema. This, again, was never put into plain words, but in an indirect way it was rubbed into every party member from childhood onwards. There were even organisations such as the Junior Anti-Sex League, which advocated complete celibacy for both sexes. All children were to be begotten by artificial insemination, artsem, it was called in Newspeak, and brought up in public institutions. This, Winston was aware, was not meant altogether seriously, but somehow it fitted in with the general ideology of the party. The party was trying to kill the sex instinct, or, if it could not be killed, then to distort it and dirty it. He did not know why this was so, but it seemed natural that it should be so. And as far as the women were concerned, the party's efforts were largely successful. He thought again of Catherine. It must be nine, ten, nearly eleven years since they had parted. It was curious how seldom he thought of her. For days at a time he was capable of forgetting that he had ever been married. They'd only been together for about fifteen months. The party did not permit divorce, but it rather encouraged separation in cases where there were no children. Catherine was a tall, fair-haired girl, very straight, with splendid movements. She had a bold, aquiline face, a face that one might have called noble, until one discovered that there was as nearly as possible nothing behind it. Very early in her married life, he had decided, though perhaps it was only that he knew her more intimately than he knew most people, that she had, without exception, the most stupid, vulgar, empty mind that he had ever encountered. She had not a thought in her head that was not a slogan, and there was no imbecility, absolutely none, that she was not capable of swallowing if the party handed it out to her. The human soundtrack, he nicknamed her in his own mind. Yet he could have endured living with her if it had not been for just one thing, sex. As soon as he touched her, she seemed to wince and stiffen. To embrace her was like embracing a jointed wooden image. And what was strange was that even when she was clasping him against her, he had the feeling that she was simultaneously pushing him away with all her strength. The rigidity of her muscles managed to convey that impression. She would lie there with shut eyes, neither resisting nor cooperating, but submitting. 
It was extraordinarily embarrassing and, after a while, horrible. But even then, he could have borne living with her if it had been agreed that they should remain celibate. But, curiously enough, it was Catherine who refused this. They must, she said, produce a child if they could. So the performance continued to happen, once a week, quite regularly, whenever it was not impossible. She even used to remind him of it in the morning, as something which had to be done that evening and which must not be forgotten. She had two names for it. One was making a baby, and the other was our duty to the party. Yes, she had actually used that phrase. Quite soon, he grew to have a feeling of positive dread when the appointed day came round. But luckily, no child appeared, and in the end, she agreed to give up trying. And soon afterwards, they parted. Winston sighed inaudibly. He picked up his pen again and wrote... She threw herself down on the bed and at once, without any kind of preliminary, in the most coarse, horrible way you can imagine, pulled up her skirt. I... He saw himself standing there in the dim lamplight, with the smell of bugs and cheap scent in his nostrils. And in his heart, a feeling of defeat and resentment, which even at that moment was mixed up with the thought of Catherine's white body, frozen forever by the hypnotic power of the party... Why did it always have to be like this? Why could he not have a woman of his own instead of these filthy scuffles at intervals of years? But a real love affair was an almost unthinkable event. The women of the party were all alike. Chastity was deep ingrained in them as party loyalty. By careful early conditioning, by games and cold water, by the rubbish that was dinned into them at school and in the spies and the youth league, by lectures, parades, songs, slogans and martial music, the natural feeling had been driven out of them. His reason told him that there must be exceptions, but his heart did not believe it. They were all impregnable, as the party intended that they should be. And what he wanted, more even than to be loved was to break down that wall of virtue, even if it were only once in his whole life. The sexual act successfully performed was rebellion. Desire was thought crime. Even to have awakened Catherine, if he could have achieved it, would have been like a seduction, although she was his wife. But the rest of the story had got to be written down. He wrote, I turned up the lamp when I saw her in the light. After the darkness, the feeble light of the paraffin lamp had seemed very bright. For the first time, he could see the woman properly. He had taken a step towards her and then halted, full of lust and terror. He was painfully conscious of the risk he had taken in coming here. It was perfectly possible that the patrols would catch him on the way out. For that matter, they might be waiting outside the door at this moment. If he went away without even doing what he had come here to do. It had got to be written down. It had got to be confessed. What he had suddenly seen in the lamplight was that the woman was old. The paint was plastered so thick on her face that it looked as though it might crack like a cardboard mask. There were streaks of white in her hair, but the truly dreadful detail was that her mouth had fallen a little open, revealing nothing except a cavernous blackness. 
she had no teeth at all. He wrote hurriedly in scribbling handwriting. When I saw her in the light, she was quite an old woman. Fifty years old at least. But I went ahead and did it just the same. He pressed his fingers against his eyelids again. He had written it down at last, but it made no difference. The therapy had not worked. The urge to shout filthy words at the top of his voice was as strong as ever. Chapter 7 If there is hope, wrote Winston, it lies in the proles. If there was hope, it must lie in the proles. Because only there, in those swarming, disregarded masses, 85% of the population of Oceania, could the force to destroy the party ever be generated. The party could not be overthrown from within. Its enemies, if it had any enemies, had no way of coming together, or even of identifying one another. Even if the legendary Brotherhood existed as it just possibly might, it was inconceivable that its members could ever assemble in larger numbers than twos and threes. Rebellion meant a look in the eyes, an inflection of the voice, at the most an occasional whispered word. But the proles, if only they could somehow become conscious of their own strength, and they would have no need to conspire. They needed only to rise up and shake themselves like a horse shaking off flies. If they chose, they could blow the party to pieces tomorrow morning. Surely, sooner or later, it must occur to them to do it. And yet... He remembered how once he had been walking down a crowded street when a tremendous shout of hundreds of voices, women's voices, had burst from a side street a little way ahead. It was a great, formidable cry of anger and despair, a deep, loud roar that went humming on like the reverberation of a bell. His heart had leapt. It started, he had thought, a riot! The proles are breaking loose at last! When he had reached the spot, it was to see a mob of two or three hundred women crowding round the stalls of a street market, with faces as tragic as though they had been doomed passengers on a sinking ship. But at this moment, the general despair broke down into a multitude of individual quarrels. It appeared that one of the stalls had been selling tin saucepans. They were wretched, flimsy things, but cooking pots of any kind were always difficult to get. Now the supply had unexpectedly given out. The successful women, bumped and jostled by the rest, were trying to make off with their saucepans, while dozens of others clamoured around the stall, accusing the stallkeeper of favouritism and of having more saucepans somewhere in reserve. There was a fresh outburst of yells. Two bloated women, one of them with her hair coming down, had got hold of the same saucepan and were trying to tear it out of one another's hands. For a moment they were both tugging and then the handle came off. Winston watched them disgustedly. And yet, just for a moment, what almost frightening power had sounded in that cry from only a few hundred throats. Why was it that they could never shout like that about anything that mattered? He wrote. 
Until they become conscious, they will never rebel. And until after they have rebelled, they cannot become conscious. That, he reflected, might almost have been a transcription from one of the party textbooks. The party claimed, of course, to have liberated the proles from bondage. Before the revolution, they had been hideously oppressed by the capitalists. They'd been starved and flogged. Women had been forced to work in the coal mines. Uh, women still did work in the coal mines, as a matter of fact. Children had been sold into the factories at the age of six. But, simultaneously, true to the principles of Doublethink, the party taught that the proles were natural inferiors, who must be kept in subjection, like animals, by the application of a few simple rules. In reality, very little was known about the proles. It was not necessary to know much. So long as they continued to work and breed, their other activities were without importance. Left to themselves like cattle turned loose upon the plains of Argentina, they had reverted to a style of life that appeared to be natural to them, a sort of ancestral pattern. They were born, they grew up in the gutters, they went to work at twelve, they passed through a brief blossoming period of beauty and sexual desire, they married at twenty, they were middle-aged at thirty, they died, for the most part, at sixty. Heavy physical work, the care of home and children, petty quarrels with neighbours, films, football, beer, and above all gambling, filled up the horizon of their minds. To keep them in control was not difficult. A few agents of the Thought Police moved always among them, spreading false rumours and marking down and eliminating the few individuals who were judged capable of becoming dangerous. But no attempt was made to indoctrinate them with the ideology of the party. It was not desirable that the proles should have strong political feelings. All that was required of them was a primitive patriotism, which could be appealed to whenever it was necessary to make them accept longer working hours or shorter rations. And even when they became discontented, as they sometimes did, their discontent led nowhere because being without general ideas, they could only focus it on petty, specific grievances. The larger evils invariably escaped their notice. The great majority of proles did not even have telescreens in their homes. Even the civil police interfered with them very little. There was a vast amount of criminality in London, a whole world within a world of thieves, bandits, prostitutes, drug peddlers, and racketeers of every description. But, since it all happened amongst the proles themselves, it was of no importance. In all questions of morals, they were allowed to follow their ancestral code. The sexual puritanism of the party was not imposed upon them. Promiscuity went unpunished. Divorce was permitted. For that matter, even religious worship would have been permitted if the proles had shown any sign of needing or wanting it. They were beneath suspicion. As the party slogan put it, Proles and animals are free. Winston reached down and cautiously scratched his varicose ulcer. It had begun itching again. The thing you invariably came back to was the impossibility of knowing what life before the revolution had really been like. He took out of the drawer a copy of a children's history textbook, which he had borrowed from Mrs. Parsons, and began copying a passage into the diary. In the old days, it ran, before the glorious revolution, London was not the beautiful city that we know today. 
It was a dark, dirty, miserable place where hardly anybody had enough to eat and where hundreds and thousands of poor people had no boots on their feet and not even a roof to sleep under. Children no older than you had to work 12 hours a day for cruel masters who flogged them with whips if they worked too slowly and fed them on nothing but stale bread crusts and water. But in among all this terrible poverty, there were just a few great, big, beautiful houses that were lived in by rich men who had as many as 30 servants to look after them. These rich men were called capitalists. They were fat, ugly men with wicked faces, like the one in the picture on the opposite page. You can see that he is dressed in a long black coat, which was called a frock coat, and a queer, shiny hat shaped like a stovepipe, which was called a top hat. This was the uniform of the capitalists, and no one else was allowed to wear it. The capitalists owned everything in the world, and everyone else was their slave. They owned all the land, all the houses, all the factories, and all the money. If anyone disobeyed them, they could throw them into prison, or they could take his job away and starve him to death. When any ordinary person spoke to a capitalist, he had to cringe and bow to him, and take off his cap, and address him as Sar. The chief of all the capitalists was called the king, and... But he knew the rest of the catalogue. There would be mention of the bishops in their lawn sleeves, the judges in their ermine robes, the pillory, the stocks, the treadmill, the cat and nine tails, the Lord Mayor's banquet, and the practice of kissing the Pope's toe. There was also something called Jus Prima Noctus, which would probably not be mentioned in a textbook for children. It was the law by which every capitalist had the right to sleep with any woman working in one of his factories. How could you tell how much of it was lies? It might be true that the average human was better off now than he had been before the revolution. The only evidence to the contrary was the mute protest in your own bones, the instinctive feeling that the conditions you lived in were intolerable, and that at some other time they must have been different. It struck him that the truly characteristic thing about modern life was not its cruelty and insecurity, but simply its bareness, its dinginess, its listlessness. Life, if you looked around you, bore no resemblance not only to the lies that streamed out of the telescreens, but even to the ideals that the party was trying to achieve. Great areas of it, even for a party member, were neutral and non-political, a matter of slogging through dreary jobs, fighting for a place on the tube, darning a worn-out sock, cadging a saccharine tablet, saving a cigarette end. The ideal set up by the party was something huge, terrible and glittering. A world of steel and concrete, of monstrous machines and terrifying weapons. A nation of warriors and fanatics, marching forward in perfect unity, all thinking the same thoughts and shouting the same slogans, perpetually working, fighting, triumphing, persecuting 300 million people, all with the same face. The reality was decaying, dingy cities where underfed people shuffled to and fro in leaky shoes in patched-up 19th-century houses that smelt always of cabbage and bad lavatories. 
He seemed to see a vision of London, vast and ruinous, city of a million dustbins, and mixed up with it was a picture of Mrs. Parsons, a woman with lined face and wispy hair, fiddling helplessly with a blocked waste pipe. He reached down and scratched his ankle again. Day and night, the telescreens bruised your ears with statistics proving that people today had more food, more clothes, better houses, better recreation, that they lived longer, worked shorter hours, were bigger, healthier, stronger, happier, more intelligent, better educated than people of 50 years ago. Not a word of it could ever be proved or disproved. The party claimed, for example, that today, 40% of adult proles were literate. Before the revolution, it was said the number had only been 15%. The party claimed that the infant mortality rate was now only 160 per thousand, whereas before the revolution, it had been 300. And so it went on. It was like a single equation with two unknowns. It might very well be that literally every word in the history books, even the things that one accepted without question, was pure fantasy. For all he knew, there might never have been any such law as the Just Prima Noctus, or any such creature as a capitalist, or any such garment as a top hat. Everything faded into mist. The past was erased, the erasure was forgotten, the lie became truth. Just once in his life he had possessed, after the event, that was what counted, concrete, unmistakable evidence of an act of falsification. He had held it between his fingers for as long as 30 seconds. In 1973, it must have been. At any rate, it was about the time when he and Catherine had parted. But the really relevant date was seven or eight years earlier. The story really began in the middle 60s, the period of the Great Purges, in which the original leaders of the revolution were wiped out once and for all. By 1970, none of them were left except a big brother himself. All the rest had by that time been exposed as traitors and counter-revolutionaries. Goldstein had fled and was hiding no one knew where, and the others, a few had simply disappeared, while the majority had been executed after spectacular public trials, at which they made confession of their crimes. Among the last survivors were three men named Jones, Aronson and Rutherford, it must have been in 1965 that these three had been arrested. As often happened, they had vanished for a year or more so that one did not know whether they were alive or dead, and then had suddenly been brought forth to incriminate themselves in the usual way. They had confessed to intelligence with the enemy. At that date, too, the enemy was Eurasia. Embezzlement of public funds, the murder of various trusted party members, intrigues against the leadership of Big Brother which had started long before the revolution happened, and acts of sabotage causing the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. After confessing to these things, they had been pardoned, reinstated in the party, and given posts which were, in fact, sinecures, but which sounded important. All three had written long, abject articles in the Times, analyzing the reasons for their defection, and promising to make amends. Sometime after their release, Winston had actually seen all three of them in the Chestnut Tree Cafe. He remembered the sort of terrified fascination with which he had watched them out of the corner of his eye. There were men far older than himself, relics of the ancient world. 
almost the last great figures left over from the heroic days of the party. The glamour of the underground struggle and the civil war still faintly clung to them. He had the feeling, though already at that time the facts and dates were growing blurry, that he had known their names years earlier than he had known that of Big Brother. But also they were outlaws, enemies, untouchables, doomed with absolute certainty to extinction within a year or two. No one who had once fallen into the hands of the Thought Police ever escaped in the end. They were corpses waiting to be sent back to the grave. There was no one at any of the tables nearest to them. It was not wise even to be seen in the neighborhood of such people. They were sitting in silence before glasses of the gin flavored with cloves, which was the specialty of the cafe. Of the three, it was Rutherford whose appearance had most impressed Winston. Rutherford had once been a famous caricaturist whose brutal cartoons had helped to inflame popular opinion before and during the revolution. Even now, at long intervals, his cartoons were appearing in the Times. They were simply an imitation of his earlier manner, and curiously lifeless and unconvincing. Always they were a rehashing of the ancient themes. Slum tenements, starving children, street battles, capitalists in top hats. Even on the barricades, the capitalists still seemed to cling to their top hats in an endless, hopeless effort to get back into the past. He was a monstrous man with a mane of greasy grey hair, his face pouched and seamed with thick negroid lips. At one time he must have been immensely strong, now his great body was sagging, sloping, bulging, falling away in every direction. He seemed to be breaking up before one's eyes, like a mountain crumbling. It was the lonely hour of fifteen. Winston could not now remember how he had come to be in the cafe at such a time. The place was almost empty. A tinny music was trickling from the telescreens. The three men sat in their corner, almost motionless, never speaking. Uncommanded, the waiter brought fresh glasses of gin. There was a chessboard on the table beside them, with the pieces set out, but no game started. And then... For perhaps half a minute in all, something happened to the telescreens. The tune that they were playing changed, and the tone of the music changed too. There came into it, but it was something hard to describe. It was a peculiar, cracked, braying, jeering note. In his mind, Winston called it a yellow note, and then a voice from the telescreen was singing. spreading chestnut tree I sold you and you sold me there lie they here lie we under the spreading chestnut tree the three men never stirred when Winston glanced again at Rutherford's ruinous face, he saw that his eyes were full of tears. And for the first time he noticed, with a kind of inward shudder, and yet not knowing at what he shuddered, that both Aronson and Rutherford had broken noses. A little later, all three were rearrested. It appeared that they had engaged in fresh conspiracies from the very moment of their release. 
At the second trial, they confessed to all their old crimes over again with a whole string of new ones. They were executed, and their fate was recorded in the party histories. A warning to posterity. About five years after this, in 1973, Winston was unrolling a wad of documents which had just flopped out of the pneumatic tube onto his desk when he came on a fragment of paper which had evidently been slipped in among the others and then forgotten. The instant he had flattened it out, he saw its significance. It was a half-torn page out of the Times of about ten years earlier, the top half of the page, so that it included the date. And it contained a photograph of the delegates at some party function in New York. Prominent in the middle of the group were Jones, Aronson and Rutherford. There was no mistaking them. In any case, their names were in the caption at the bottom. The point was that at both trials, all three men had confessed that on that date they had been on Eurasian soil. They had flown from a secret airfield in Canada to a rendezvous somewhere in Siberia and had conferred with members of the Eurasian general staff to whom they had betrayed important military secrets. The date had stuck in Winston's memory because it chanced to be Midsummer Day. But the whole story must be on record in countless other places as well. There was only one possible conclusion. The confessions were lies. Of course, this was not in itself a discovery. Even at that time, Winston had not imagined that the people who were wiped out in the purges had actually committed the crimes that they'd been accused of. But this was concrete evidence. It was a fragment of the abolished past, like a fossil bone which turns up in the wrong stratum and destroys a geological theory. It was enough to blow the party to atoms, if in some way it could have been published to the world and its significance made known. He had gone straight on working. As soon as he saw what the photograph was and what it meant, he had covered it up with another sheet of paper. Luckily, when he unrolled it, it had been upside down from the point of view of the telescreen. He took his scribbling pad on his knee and pushed back his chair so as to get as far away from the telescreen as possible. To keep your face expressionless was not difficult, and even your breathing could be controlled with an effort. But you could not control the beating of your heart, and the telescreen was quite delicate enough to pick it up. He let what he judged to be ten minutes go by, tormented all the while by the fear that some accident, a sudden draft blowing across his desk, for instance, would betray him. Then, without uncovering it again, he dropped the photograph into the memory hole, along with some other waste papers. Within another minute, perhaps it would have crumbled into ashes. That was ten, eleven years ago. Today, probably, he would have kept the photograph. It was curious that the fact of having held it in his fingers seemed to him to make a difference even now, when the photograph itself, as well as the event it recorded, was only a memory. Was the party's hold upon the past less strong, he wondered, because a piece of evidence which existed no longer had once existed? But today, supposing that it could be somehow resurrected from its ashes, the photograph might not even be evidence. Already at the time when he had made the discovery, Oceania was no longer at war with Eurasia, and it must have been to the agents of East Asia that the three dead men had betrayed their country. Since then, there had been other changes, two, three, he could not remember how many. 
Very likely, the confessions had been rewritten and rewritten until the original facts and dates no longer had the smallest significance. The past not only changed, but changed continuously. What most afflicted him with a sense of nightmare was that he had never clearly understood why the great imposture was undertaken. The immediate advantages of falsifying the past were obvious, but the ultimate motives were mysterious. He took up his pen again and wrote, I understand how. I do not understand why. He wondered, as he had many times wondered before, whether he himself was a lunatic. Perhaps a lunatic was simply a minority of one. At one time, it had been the sign of madness to believe that the earth goes round the sun. Today, to believe that the past is inalterable. He might be alone in holding that belief. And if alone, then a lunatic. But the thought of being a lunatic did not greatly trouble him. The horror was that he might also be wrong. He picked up the children's history book and looked at the portrait of Big Brother, which formed its frontispiece. The hypnotic eyes gazed into his own. It was as though some huge force was pressing down upon you. Something that penetrated inside your skull, battered against your brain, frightened you out of your beliefs, persuaded you almost to deny the evidence of your senses. In the end, the party would announce that two, two and two, two made five. And you would have to believe it. It was inevitable that they should make the claim sooner or later. The logic of their position demanded it. Not merely the validity of experience, but the very existence of external reality was tacitly denied by their philosophy. The heresy of heresies was common sense. And what was terrifying was not that they would kill you for thinking otherwise, but that they might be right. For after all, how do we know that two and two make four? Or that the force of gravity works? Or that the past is unchangeable? If both the past and the external world exist only in the mind, and if the mind itself is controllable, what then? But no! His courage seemed suddenly to stiffen of its own accord. The face of O'Brien, not called up by any obvious association, had floated into his mind. He knew with more certainty than before that O'Brien was on his side. He was writing the diary for O'Brien, to O'Brien. It was like an interminable letter which no one would ever read, but which was addressed to a particular person and took its color from that fact. The party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most essential command. His heart sank as he thought of the enormous power arrayed against him. The ease with which any party intellectual would overthrow him in debate. The subtle arguments which he would not be able to understand, much less answer. And yet, he was in the right. They were wrong and he was right. The obvious, the silly and the true had got to be defended. Truisms are true. Hold on to that. The solid world exists. Its laws do not change. Stones are hard. Water is wet. Objects unsupported fall towards the Earth's center. 
with the feeling that he was speaking to O'Brien and also that he was setting forth an important axiom, he wrote, Freedom is the freedom to say that two plus two makes four. If that is granted, all else follows. Chapter 8 From somewhere at the bottom of the passage, the smell of roasting coffee, real coffee, not victory coffee, came floating out into the street. Winston paused involuntarily. For perhaps two seconds, he was back in the half-forgotten world of his childhood. Then a door banged, seeming to cut off the smell as abruptly as though it had been a sound. He had walked several kilometers over pavements, and his varicose ulcer was throbbing. This was the second time in three weeks that he had missed an evening at the community center. A rash act, since you could be certain that the number of your attendances at the center was carefully checked. In principle, a party member had no spare time and was never alone except in bed. It was assumed that when he was not working, eating or sleeping, he would be taking part in some kind of communal recreation. To do anything that suggested a taste for solitude, even to go for a walk by yourself, was always slightly dangerous. There was a word for it in Newspeak. Own life, it was called, meaning individualism and eccentricity. But this evening, as he came out of the ministry, the balminess of the April air had tempted him. The sky was a warmer blue than he had seen it that year. And suddenly, the long, noisy evening at the center, the boring, exhausting games, the lectures, the creaking camaraderie oiled by gin had seemed intolerable. On impulse, he had turned away from the bus stop and wandered off into the labyrinth of London. First south, then east, then north again, losing himself amongst unknown streets and hardly bothering in which direction he was going. If there is hope, he had written in the diary, it lies in the prose. The words kept coming back to him, statement of a mystical truth and a palpable absurdity. He was somewhere in the vague brown-coloured slums to the north and east of what had once been St. Pancras Station. He was walking up a cobbled street of little two-story houses with battered doorways, which gave straight on the pavement, and which were somehow curiously suggestive of rat holes. There were puddles of filthy water here and there among the cobbles. In and out of the dark doorways and down narrow alleyways that branched off on either side, people swarmed in astonishing numbers. Girls in full bloom with crudely lipsticked mouths, and youths who chased the girls, and swollen waddling women who showed you what the girls would be like in ten years' time, and old bent creatures shuffling along on splayed feet, and ragged barefooted children who played in the puddles and then scattered at angry yells from their mothers. Perhaps a quarter of the windows in the street were broken and boarded up. Most of the people paid no attention to Winston. A few eyed him with a sort of guarded curiosity. Two monstrous women with brick-red forearms folded against their aprons were talking outside a doorway. Winston caught scraps of conversation as he approached. Yes, I says to her, that's all very well, I says, but if you'd have been in my place, you'd have done the same as what I done. It's easy to criticize, I says, but you ain't got the same problems as what I got. Oh, said the other, that's just it, that's just where it is. The strident voices stopped abruptly. The women studied him in hostile silence as he went past. 
But it was not hostility exactly, merely a kind of wariness, a momentary stiffening as at the passing of some unfamiliar animal. The blue overalls of the party could not be a common sight in a street like this. Indeed, it was unwise to be seen in such places, unless you had definite business there. The patrols might stop you if you happened to run into them. May I see your papers, comrade? What are you doing here? What time did you leave work? Is this your usual way home? And so on and so forth. Not that there was any rule against walking home by an unusual route, but it was enough to draw attention to you if the thought police heard about it. Suddenly, the whole street was in commotion. There were yells of warning from all sides. People were shooting into the doorways like rabbits. A young woman leapt out of a doorway a little ahead of Winston, grabbed up a tiny child playing in a puddle, whipped her apron round it, and leapt back again, all in one movement. At the same instant, a man in a Constantina-like black suit, who had emerged from a side alley, ran towards Winston, pointing excitedly to the sky. Steamer! Look out, Governor! Bang overhead! Lay down! Quick! Steamer was a nickname which, for some reason, the proles applied to rocket bombs. Winston promptly flung himself on his face. The proles were nearly always right when they gave you a warning of this kind. They seemed to possess some kind of instinct which told them several seconds in advance when a rocket was coming, although the rockets supposedly travelled faster than sound. Winston clasped his forearms above his head. There was a roar that seemed to make the pavement heave. of glass from the nearest window. He walked on. The bomb had demolished a group of houses 200 meters on the street. A black plume of smoke hung in the sky, and below it a cloud of plaster dust in which a crowd was already forming around the ruins. There was a little pile of plaster lying on the pavement ahead of him, and in the middle of it he could see a bright red streak. When he got up to it, he saw that it was a human hand severed at the wrist. Apart from the bloody stump, the hand was so completely whitened as to resemble a plaster cast. He kicked the thing into the gutter, and then, to avoid the crowd, turned down a side street to the right. Within three or four minutes, he was out of the area which the bomb had affected, and the sordid, swarming life of the streets was going on as though nothing had happened. It was nearly 24 hours, and the drinking shops, which the proles frequented, pubs, they called them, were choked with customers. From their grimy swing doors, endlessly opening and shutting, there came forth a smell of urine, sawdust, and sour beer. In an angle formed by a projecting house front, three men were standing very close together. The middle one of them was holding a folded-up newspaper, which the other two were studying over his shoulder. Even before he was near enough to make out the expression on their faces, Winston could see absorption in every line of their bodies. It was obviously some serious piece of news that they were reading. He was a few paces away from them when suddenly the group broke up and two of the men were in a violent altercation. For a moment they seemed almost on the point of blows. 
Can't you bleeding well listen to what I say? I'll tell you, no number ending in seven ain't one for over 14 months. Yes, it has, then. No, it has not. Back home, I got the whole lot of them for over two years written down on a piece of paper. I take them down regular as the clock, and I tell you, no number ending in seven. Yes, a seven has one. I could pretty near tell you the bleeding number. 407 it ended in. It were in February. Second week in February. February, your grandmother, I got it all down in black and white, and I tell you, no number! Oh, pack it in, said the third man. They were talking about the lottery. Winston looked back when he had gone 30 metres. They were still arguing, with vivid, passionate faces. The lottery, with its weekly payout of enormous prizes, was the one public event to which the proles paid serious attention. It was probable that there were some millions of proles for whom the lottery was the principal, if not the only reason, for remaining alive. It was their delight, their folly, their anodyne, their intellectual stimulant. Where the lottery was concerned, even people who could barely read and write seemed capable of intricate calculations and staggering feats of memory. There was a whole tribe of men who made a living simply by selling systems, forecasts and lucky amulets. Winston had nothing to do with the running of the lottery, which was managed by the Ministry of Plenty, but he was aware, indeed everyone in the party was aware, that the prizes were largely imaginary. Only small sums were actually paid out, the winners of the big prizes being non-existent persons. In the absence of any real intercommunication between one part of Oceania and another, this was not difficult to arrange. But, if there was hope... It lay in the proles. You had to cling on to that. When you put it in words, it sounded reasonable. It was when you looked at the human beings passing you on the pavement that it became an act of faith. The street into which he had turned ran downhill. He had a feeling that he had been in this neighborhood before, and that there was a main thoroughfare not far away. From somewhere ahead there came a din of shouting voices. The street took a sharp turn, and then ended in a flight of steps which led down into a sunken alley where a few stall holders were selling tired-looking vegetables. At this moment, Winston remembered where he was. The alley led out into the main street, and down the next turning not five minutes away was the junk shop where he had bought the blank book which was now his diary. And in a small stationer's shop not far away he had bought his pen holder and his bottle of ink. He paused for a moment at the top of the steps. On the opposite side of the alley, there was a dingy little pub whose windows appeared to be frosted over, but in reality were merely coated with dust. A very old man, bent but active, with white moustaches that bristled forward like those of a prawn, pushed open the swing door and went in. As Winston stood watching, it occurred to him that the old man, who must be 80 at the least, had already been middle-aged when the revolution happened. He and a few others like him were the last links that now existed with the vanished world of capitalism. In the party itself, there was not many people left whose ideas had been formed before the revolution. The older generation had mostly been wiped out in the great purges of the 50s and 60s, and the few who survived had long ago been terrified into complete intellectual surrender. If there was anyone still alive who could give you a truthful account of conditions in the early part of the century, it could only be a prowl. Suddenly, the passage from the history book that he had copied into his diary came back into Winston's mind, and a lunatic impulse took hold of him. 
he would go into the pub. He would make acquaintance with that old man and question him. He would say to him, Tell me about your life when you were a boy. What was it like in those days? Were things better than they are now, or were they worse? Hurriedly, lest he should have time to become frightened, he descended the steps and crossed the narrow street. It was madness, of course. As usual, there was no definite rule against talking to proles and frequenting their pubs, but it was far too unusual an action to pass unnoticed. If the patrols appeared, he might plead an attack of faintness, but it was not likely that they would believe him. He pushed open the door, and the hideous cheesy smell of sour beer hit him in the face. As he entered, the din of voices dropped to about half its volume. Behind his back, he could feel everyone eyeing his blue overalls. A game of darts, which was going on at the other end of the room, interrupted itself for perhaps as much as 30 seconds. The old man whom he had followed was standing at the bar, having some kind of altercation with the barman. A large, stout, hook-nosed young man with enormous forearms. A knot of others standing round with glasses in their hands were watching the scene. I asked you civil enough, didn't I? said the old man, straightening his shoulders pugnaciously. You telling me you ain't got a pint mug in the old bleeding boozer? And what in hell's name is a pint? said the barman, leaning forward with the tips of his fingers on the counter. Oh, get him. Calls yourself a barman and don't know what a pint is. Why a pint's the half of a quart, and there's four quarts to a gallon. After teacher the ABCs next. Never heard of him, said the barman shortly. Leader and half leader, that's all we serve. There's the glasses on the shelf in front of you. I likes a pint, persisted the old man. You could have drawed me off a pint easy enough. We didn't have these bleeding liters when I was a young man. When you were a young man, we were all living in the treetops, said the barman with a glance at the other customers. There was a shout of laughter, and the uneasiness caused by Winston's entry seemed to disappear. The old man's white stubbled face had flushed pink. He turned away, muttering to himself, and bumped into Winston. Winston caught him gently by the arm. May I offer you a drink, he said. Ah, you're a gent, said the other, straightening his shoulders again. He appeared not to have noticed Winston's blue overalls. Point, he added aggressively to the barman. Point a wallop! The barman swished two half-litres of dark brown beer into thick glasses, which he had rinsed in a bucket under the counter. Beer was the only drink you could get in prol pubs. The proles were supposed not to drink gin, though in practice they could get hold of it easily enough. The game of darts was in full swing again, and the knot of men at the bar had begun talking about lottery tickets. Winston's presence was forgotten for a moment. There was a deal table under the window where he and the old man could talk without fear of being overheard. It was horribly dangerous, but at any rate there was no telescreen in the room, a point he had made sure of as soon as he came in. He could have drawed me off a point, grumbled the old man as he settled down behind a glass. Half leader ain't enough. It don't satisfy. And an old leader's too much. It starts my bladder running, let alone the price. You must have seen great changes since you were a young man, said Winston tentatively. The old man's pale blue eyes moved from the darts board to the bar, and from the bar to the door of the gents, as though it were in the bar room that he expected the changes to have occurred. The beer was better, he said finally. And cheaper. 
when I was a young man, mild beer, wallop, we used to call it, was four pence a point. That was before the war, of course. Which war was that? said Winston. That's all wars, said the old man vaguely. He took up his glass and his shoulders straightened again. Here's wishing you the very best of Alf. In his lean throat, the sharp-pointed Adam's apple made a surprisingly rapid up-and-down movement, and the beer vanished. Winston went to the bar and came back with two more half-litres. The old man appeared to have forgotten his prejudice against drinking a full litre. "'You are very much older than I am,' said Winston. "'You must have been a grown man before I was born. "'You can remember what it was like in the old days, before the revolution. "'People of my age don't really know anything about those times. "'We can only read about them in books, and what it says in the books may not be true. "'I should like your opinion on that.' "'The history books say that life before the revolution was completely different from what it is now. "'There was the most terrible oppression, injustice, poverty, worse than anyone can imagine.' Here in London, the great mass of the people had never had enough to eat from birth to death. Half of them hadn't even boots on their feet. They worked 12 hours a day, they left school at 9, they slept 10 in a room, and at the same time, there were very few people, only a few thousands, the capitalists, they were called, who were rich and powerful. They owned everything that there was to own. They lived in gorgeous houses with 30 servants. They rode about in motor cars and four-horse carriages. They drank champagne. They wore top hats. The old man brightened suddenly. Top hats, he said. Ah, funny you should mention them. The same thing came into my head only yesterday. I don't know why. I was just thinking, I ain't seen a top hat in years. Gone right out, they have. The last time I wore one was at my sister-in-law's funeral. And that was... Well, I couldn't give you the date, but it must have been 50 years ago. Of course, it was only hired for the occasion, you understand. It isn't very important about the top hats, said Winston patiently. The point is, these capitalists, they and a few lawyers and priests and so forth who lived on them, were the lords of the earth. Everything existed for their benefit. You, the ordinary people, the workers, were their slaves. They could do what they liked with you. They could ship you off to Canada like cattle. They could sleep with your daughters if they chose. They could order you to be flogged with something called a cat of nine tails. You had to take your cap off when you passed them. Every capitalist went about with a gang of lackeys who... The old man brightened again. Lackeys! He said. Oh, that regular takes me back, it does. I recollect, oh, donkeys years ago. I used to sometimes go to Hyde Park on a Sunday afternoon to hear the blokes making speeches. Salvation Army, Roman Catholics, Jews, Indians, all sorts there was. And there was one bloke, uh, I couldn't give you his name, but a real powerful speaker he was. He didn't half give it to him. <laughs> lackeys, he says. Lackeys of the bourgeoisie. Flunkies of the ruling class. The parasites! That was another one of them. And uh, Yenas. Yeah, he, he definitely called him Yenas. Gosh, he was referring to the Labour Party, you understand. Winston had the feeling that they were talking at crossed purposes. What I really want to know was this, he said. Do you feel that you have more freedom now than you had in those days? Are you treated more like a human being? In the old days, the rich people, the people at the top... House of Lords, put in the old man reminiscently. The House of Lords, if you like. What I'm asking is, were these people able to treat you as an inferior simply because they were rich and you were poor? 
Is it a fact, for instance, that you had to call them sir and take off your cap when you passed them? The old man appeared to think deeply. He drank off about a quarter of his beer before answering. Yeah, he said. Well, they like you to touch your cap to them and show respect. I didn't agree with it myself, but I do not often enough. Had to, as you might say. Hmm. And was it usual, I'm, I'm only quoting what I've read in the history books, was it usual for these people and their servants to push you off the pavement into the gutter? One of them pushed me once, said the old man. I recollect it as if it was yesterday. It was boat race night. Terribly rowdy they used to get on boat race night. And I bumped into a young bloke on Shaftesbury Avenue. Quite a gent he was. He dress, shirt, top hat, black overcoat. He was kind of zigzagging across the pavement, and I bumped into him, accidental like. He says, why can't you look where you're going, he says. I say, do you think you bought the bleeding pavement? He says, I'll twist your bloody head off if you get fresh with me. I says, you're drunk. I'll give you in charge in half a minute, I says. And if you believe me, he puts his hand on my chest. He gives me a shove, has pretty near sent me under the wheels of a bus. Well, I was young in them days, and I was going to fetch them one only. A sense of helplessness took hold of Winston. The old man's memory was nothing but a rubbish heap of details. One could question him all day without getting any real information. The party histories might still be true after a fashion. They might even be completely true. He made a last attempt. (laughs) Perhaps I have not made myself clear, he said. What I'm trying to say is this. You have been alive a very long time. You lived half your life before the revolution. In 1925, for instance, you were already grown up. Would you say, from what you can remember, that life in 1925 was better than it is now or worse? If you could choose, would you prefer to live then or now? The old man looked meditatively at the darts board. He finished up his beer more slowly than before. When he spoke, it was with a tolerant philosophical air, as though the beer had mellowed him. I know what you expect me to say, he said. You expect me to say I'd sooner be young again. Well, most people would say they'd sooner be young if you asked them. You got your health and strength when you're young. When you get to my time of life, you you ain't never well. I suffer something wicked from my feet and my bladder's just terrible six and seven times a night it has me out of bed on the other hand there's great advantages in being an old man you ain't got the same worries no truck with women and that's a great thing I ain't had a woman for well, near on 30 year if you credit it or wanted to once more Winston sat back against the windowsill there was no use going on He was about to buy some more beer when the old man suddenly got up and shuffled rapidly into the stinking urinal at the side of the room. The extra half-litre was already working on him. Winston sat for a minute or two, gazing at his empty glass, and hardly noticed when his feet carried him out into the street again. Within twenty years at the most, he reflected. The huge and simple question, was life better before the revolution than it is now, would have ceased once and for all to be answerable. But in effect, it was unanswerable even now, since the few scattered survivors from the ancient world were incapable of comparing one age with another. They remembered a million useless things, 
A quarrel with a workmate. A hunt for a lost bicycle pump. The expression on a long-dead sister's face. The swirls of dust on a windy morning 70 years ago. But all the relevant facts were outside the range of their vision. They were like the ant, which can see small objects but not large ones. And when memory failed and written records were falsified... When that happened, the claim of the party to have improved the conditions of human life had got to be accepted, because there did not exist, and never again could exist, any standard against which it could be tested. At this moment, his train of thought stopped abruptly. He halted and looked up. He was in a narrow street, with a few dark little shops, interspersed amongst dwelling houses. Immediately above his head there hung three discoloured metal balls which looked as if they had once been gilded. He seemed to know the place. Of course, he was standing outside the junk shop where he had bought the diary. A twinge of fear went through him. It had been a sufficiently rash act to buy the book in the beginning, and he had sworn never to come near the place again. And yet the instant he allowed his thoughts to wander, his feet had brought him back here of their own accord. It was precisely against suicidal impulses of this kind that he had hoped to guard himself by opening the diary. At the same time, he noticed that although it was nearly 21 hours, the shop was still open. With the feeling that he would be less conspicuous inside than hanging about on the pavement, he stepped through the doorway. If questioned, he could plausibly say that he was trying to buy razor blades. The proprietor had just lighted a hanging oil lamp, which gave off an unclean but friendly smell. He was a man of perhaps sixty, frail and bowed, with a long, benevolent nose and mild eyes distorted by thick spectacles. His hair was almost white, but his eyebrows were bushy and still black. His spectacles, his gentle, fussy movements, and the fact that he was wearing an aged jacket of black velvet gave him a vague air of intellectuality as though he had been some kind of literary man, or perhaps a musician. His voice was soft, as though faded, and his accent less debased than that of the majority of proles. I recognized you on the pavement, he said immediately. You're the gentleman that bought the young lady's keepsake album. That was a beautiful bit of paper, that was. Cream laid, it used to be called. There's been no paper like that made for, oh, I dare say, fifty years. He peered at Winston over the top of his spectacles. Is there anything special I can do for you, or did you just want to look round? I was passing, said Winston vaguely. I just looked in. I don't want anything in particular. It's just as well, said the other, because I don't suppose I could have satisfied you. He made an apologetic gesture with his soft-palmed hand. You see how it is? An empty shop, you might say. Between you and me, the antique trade's just about finished. No demand any longer, and no stock either. Furniture, china, glass, it's all been broken up by degrees. And, of course, the metal stuff's mostly been melted down. I haven't seen a brass candlestick in years. The tiny interior of the shop was, in fact, uncomfortably full, but there was almost nothing in it of the slightest value. The floor space was very restricted, because all round the walls were stacked innumerable dusty picture frames. In the window there were trays of nuts and bolts, worn-out chisels, pen knives with broken blades, tarnished watches that did not even pretend to be in going order, and other miscellaneous rubbish. 
Only on a small table in the corner was there a litter of odds and ends, lacquered snuff boxes, agate brooches and the like, which looked as though they might include something interesting. As Winston wandered towards the table, his eye was caught by a round, smooth thing that gleamed softly in the lamplight, and he picked it up. It was a heavy lump of glass, curved on one side, flat on the other, making almost a hemisphere. There was a peculiar softness as of rainwater in both the colour and the texture of the glass. At the heart of it, magnified by the curved surface, there was a strange, pink, convoluted object that recalled a rose or a sea anemone. "'What is it?' said Winston, fascinated. "'That's coral, that is,' said the old man. "'It must have come from the Indian Ocean. "'They used to kind of embed it in the glass. "'That wasn't made less than a hundred years ago, more by look.' "'It's a beautiful thing,' said Winston. "'It is a beautiful thing,' said the other appreciatively. "'Well, there's not many that'd say so nowadays,' he coughed. Now, if it so happened that you wanted to buy it, that'd cost you four dollars. I can remember when a thing like that would have fetched eight pounds, and eight pounds was... Well, I can't work it out, but it was a lot of money. But who cares about genuine antiques nowadays, even the few that's left? Winston immediately paid over the four dollars and slid the coveted thing into his pocket. What appealed to him about it was not so much its beauty as the air it seemed to possess of belonging to an age quite different from the present one. The soft, rain-watery glass was not like any glass that he had ever seen. The thing was doubly attractive because of its apparent uselessness, although he could guess that it must once have been intended as a paperweight. It was very heavy in his pocket, but fortunately it did not make much of a bulge. It was a queer thing, even a compromising thing, for a party member to have in his possession. Anything old, and for that matter anything beautiful, was always vaguely suspect. The old man had grown noticeably more cheerful after receiving the four dollars. Winston realised that he would have accepted three or even two. "'There's another room upstairs that you might care to take a look at,' he said. "'There's not much in it, just a few pieces.' We'll do with a light if we're going upstairs. He lit another lamp, and with bowed back, led the way slowly up the steep and worn stairs and along a tiny passage into a room which did not give on the street, but looked out onto a cobbled yard and a forest of chimney pots. Winston noticed that the furniture was still arranged as though the room were meant to be lived in. There was a strip of carpet on the floor, a picture or two on the walls, and a deep, slatternly armchair drawn up to the fireplace. An old-fashioned glass clock with a twelve-hour face was ticking away on the mantelpiece. Under the window, and occupying nearly a quarter of the room, was an enormous bed, with the mattress still on it. "'We lived here till my wife died,' said the old man, half-apologetically. "'I'm selling the furniture off by little and little. Now that's a beautiful mahogany bed, or at least it would be if you could get the bugs out of it.' "'but I dare say you'd find it a little bit cumbersome.' "'He was holding the lamp high up so as to illuminate the whole room, "'and in the warm, dim light the place looked curiously inviting. "'The thought flitted through Winston's mind "'that it would probably be quite easy to rent the room for a few dollars a week, "'if he dared to take the risk. "'It was a wild, impossible notion to be abandoned as soon as thought of, "'but the room had awakened in him a sort of nostalgia.' 
a sort of ancestral memory. It seemed to him that he knew exactly what it felt like to sit in a room like this, in an armchair beside an open fire, with your feet in the fender and a kettle on the hob, utterly alone, utterly secure, with nobody watching you, no voice pursuing you, no sound except the singing of the kettle and the friendly ticking of the clock. There's no telescreen, he couldn't help murmuring. Ah, said the other man. I never had one of those things too expensive, and I never seemed to feel the need of it somehow. Now that's a nice gate-leg table in the corner there, though of course you'd have to put new hinges on it if you wanted to use the flaps. There was a small bookshelf in the other corner, and Winston had already gravitated towards it. It contained nothing but rubbish. The hunting down and destruction of books had been done with the same thoroughness in the prole quarters as everywhere else. It was very unlikely that there existed anywhere in Oceania a copy of a book printed earlier than 1960. The old man, still carrying the lamp, was standing in front of a picture in a rosewood frame, which hung on the other side of the fireplace, opposite the bed. Now, if you happen to be interested in old prints at all, he began delicately. Winston came across to examine the picture. It was a steel engraving of an oval building with rectangular windows and a small tower in front. There was a railing running around the building, and at the rear end there was what appeared to be a statue. Winston gazed at it for some moments. It seemed vaguely familiar, though he did not remember the statue. The frame's fixed to the wall, said the old man, but I could unscrew it for you, I dare say. I know that building, said Winston finally. It's a ruin now. It's in the middle of the street outside the Palace of Justice. That's right, outside the law courts. It was bombed in, oh, many years ago. It was a church at one time, St. Clement Danes, its name was. He smiled apologetically, as though conscious of saying something slightly ridiculous, and added, Oranges and lemons say the bells of St. Clement's. What's that? said Winston. Oh, uh, oranges and lemons say the bells of St. Clement's. That was a rhyme we had when I was a little boy. How it goes on, I don't remember, but I do know how it ended up. Here comes a candle to light you to bed. Here comes a chopper to chop off your head. It was a kind of dance. They held out their arms for you to pass under, and when they came to Here comes a chopper to chop off your head, they brought their arms down and caught you. It was just the names of churches. All the London churches were in it. All the principal ones, that is. Winston wondered vaguely to what century the church belonged. It was always difficult to determine the age of a London building. Anything large and impressive, if it was reasonably new in appearance, was automatically claimed as having been built since the Revolution, while anything that was obviously of earlier date was ascribed to some dim period called the Middle Ages. The centuries of capitalism were held to have produced nothing of any value. One could not learn history from architecture any more than one could learn it from books. Statues, inscriptions, memorial stones, the names of streets, anything that might throw light upon the past had been systematically altered. I never knew it had been a church, he said. There's a lot of them left, really, said the old man, though they've been put to other uses. Now how did that rhyme go? Ah, I've got it. Oranges and lemons say the bells of St. Clement's. You owe me three farthings, say the bells of St. Martin's. There, now that's as far as I can get. 
A farthing, that was a small copper coin, looked something like a cent. Where was St. Martin's? said Winston. St. Martin's? Are oh, that still standing? It's in Victory Square, alongside the picture gallery. A building with a kind of triangular porch and pillars in front and a big flight of steps. Winston knew the place well. It was a museum used for propaganda displays of various kinds. Scale models of rocket bombs and floating fortresses. Waxwork tableau illustrating enemy atrocities and the like. St. Martin's in the Fields, it used to be called, supplemented the old man. Though I don't recollect any fields anywhere in those parts. Winston did not buy the picture. It would have been an even more incongruous possession than the glass paperweight, and impossible to carry home unless it were taken out of its frame. But he lingered for some minutes more, talking to the old man, whose name, he discovered, was not Weeks, as one might have gathered from the inscription over the shop front, but Charrington. Mr. Charrington, it seemed, was a widower, aged 63, and had inhabited this shop for 30 years. Throughout that time, he had been intending to alter the name over the window, but had never quite gotten to the point of doing it. All the while that they were talking, the half-remembered rhyme kept running through Winston's head. Oranges and lemons, say the bells of St. Clemens. You owe me three farthings, say the bells of St. Martin's. It was curious, but when you said it to yourself, you had the illusion of actually hearing bells. The bells of a lost London that still existed somewhere or other disguised and forgotten. From one ghostly steeple after another, he seemed to hear them pealing forth. Yet so far as he could remember, he had never in real life heard church bells ringing. He got away from Mr. Charrington and went down the stairs alone, so as not to let the old man see him reconnoitering the street before stepping out of the door. He'd already made up his mind that after a suitable interval, a month, say, he would take the risk of visiting the shop again. It was perhaps not more dangerous than shirking an evening at the centre. The serious piece of folly had been to come back here in the first place after buying the diary and without knowing whether the proprietor of the shop could be trusted. However, yes, he thought again, he would come back. He would buy further scraps of beautiful rubbish. He would buy the engravings of St. Clement Danes, take it out of its frame and carry it home concealed under the jacket of his overalls. He would drag the rest of that poem out of Mr. Charrington's memory. Even the lunatic project of renting the room upstairs flashed momentarily through his mind again. For perhaps five seconds, exultation made him careless, and he stepped out onto the pavement without so much as a preliminary glance through the window. He had even started humming to an improvised tune. Oranges and lemons, say the bells of St. Clemens, you owe me three farthings, say the... In 1950, a Republican senator from Wisconsin by the name of Joseph McCarthy said that there were over 205 known communists that had already infiltrated the State Department, and we're talking about the federal government. He went on from there to develop investigative tools to find other communists. See, at the time, communists were the plague, and everyone knew that anything that had to do with communism would end up in, with a totalitarian government. Now, the people in the government that were the communists, the majority of them were Jewish. Well, you have to understand, a Jew invented communism. The concept of communism has been around for thousands and thousands of years, and basically it embroils to the point of there is a totalitarian government that's made up of one 
or more people who control the lives and actions of every citizen under them. You own nothing, you do what you're told, or you die or disappear. So he started in the 1950s. He ended up being attacked and and, uh, destroyed pretty much by the communists that were in charge. And now in 1984, so far you've listened to two different shows. That is communism. And you're going to see more of it as we go along. Now that we have communists in full control of the United States federal government, and for that matter, almost every other particle of the government throughout the United States. These are Democrats. That's the word. Except I don't like using that word because they're not. They are communists. Every Democrat is a communist. Every Democrat who claims he's not a communist, well, he's a liar. All right, I'm going to go do a little bit of news here, just so you guys know what's going on with Survival Enterprises. Starting now, we're going to start taking credit cards and debit cards again. We can take credit cards in-house. If you come into the store, Survival Enterprises, we can take your credit card there. You call us on the phone, give us an order, we can take your credit card on that. And we're going to revamp the order form online to where you can input your credit card data there. So that's coming up. We now have ham and shortwave radios in stock. I don't have them on the site yet. I've been so busy, it's ridiculous. We do have them. Now we're jumping down to the health department. I've had a half a dozen people come in the store here in in, uh, Hayden and ask me uh, that, you know, my my company is going to mandate everybody get the vaccination, and I I don't know if I should quit. I I don't know if they can do that. Under federal law, they cannot do that. They cannot threaten you with termination if you don't take this vaccine because it's not a vaccine. It is an emergency use authorized injection, and that's all it is. Let me read the federal law on this. It's under 21 USC Code 360 BBB-3, Authorization for Medical Products for Use in Emergencies. Appropriate conditions designed to ensure that individuals to whom the product is administered are informed, one, that the Secretary of Health and Human Services has authorized the emergency use of this product, two, of the significant known and potential benefits and risks of such use, and of the extent to which such benefits and risks are unknown, and three, of the option to accept or refuse administration of the product, of the consequences, if any, of refusing administration of the product, and of the alternatives to the product that are available, and of their benefits and risks. You understand that? Under federal law, You have an option. They may not mandate. If they do, you can sue them for wrongful termination. It's that simple. Now, you can go to armchairsurvivalist.com. You look up show notes for this date, uh, February 7th, and I will have links to all everything that I'm talking about. Now, we're going to get into government threat, and this is in uh, line with what you've been listening to, 1984. The new head, the chief of CIA counterintelligence, has come out and said that we need to start culling out. We need to get rid of. We need to investigate and find all of these potential white supremacists, these terrorists throughout the United States. This is the head of the CIA doing this. They need to root out all of the white terrorists. Now, the dimwit put in place a uh, new secretary of defense. His name is Lloyd Austin. He's a racist black communist. He has ordered a patriot purge of all all branches of the military. He's telling all branches of the military to shut down for 60 days, and you need to go through and purge out all the white supremacists and extremists, which means pretty much any patriotic white person. But it'll never happen in America, right? I hear that all the time. This kind of stuff will never happen in America. New federal law, thanks to Dimwit. 
You have to wear masks if you're going to be on any public transportation. Planes, trains, Ubers, taxis, buses. And this is not just a recommendation. If you don't, the mask police will arrest you. They will charge you. Big thing that I want to talk to you about right now is homeschooling. Now, I don't have a lot of time to do this, but I'm going to do it as best as I can. You cannot leave your child in public school. From the age of six... They're taught all the forms of communism, everything that they need to learn. They're taught how to have sex, how to um, not get pregnant. They're taught how to hate America. They're taught how to hate white people. Your children are being taught that white is a um, very degenerated form of humanity. And they have never done anything to assist humanity ever on earth. Blacks have, Mexicans have, Asians have, but not whites. Whites are the evil that have destroyed, well, everything. Your children are learning that you can have sex with anyone. It doesn't matter, male, female. Uh, If you're a 10-year-old boy, you can have sex with your uncle. That's okay. It's not a problem with that. These are being taught in your schools now. And I don't want to hear how, well, I have my kid in a charter school. Really? Why don't you go out at the class then? Go take a look at what the hell's going on in the classes. You have the right, by the way. If you want to know what's happening, go out at the class. Or if you you live under a communist regime like California and you're homeschooling, or in other words, your kid is stuck in front of a laptop for six hours a day, sit there and watch what they're teaching him. I have seen Black Lives Matter teaching and telling your children that, uh, you know, you're, you're white, so you're automatically a racist. You're automatically evil. You are automatically someone that has to be cleaned up. Your whiteness has to be washed away from you. Now, there's all kinds of different places and ways to that you can do schooling. I'm going to get into the nuts and bolts of it at some time. Not, right now is not the time. Right now, I want to give you some ideas of where you can get the information and the data. Now, my son was homeschooled from birth. At the age of three, he was reading. And that's not magic. That is normal if you're teaching him right. We taught him how to read using McGuffey's Eclectic Readers. These have been around for hundreds of years, and they are little brown books, and they're very, very simple. Now, I have, a, I will have a link to that. In fact, you can download them. You don't even need to buy them anymore. If you have a, a young child who hasn't started reading yet, or if you want to start them, this is what you do. I'm going to give you some ideas of where you can go and what you can do. You're going to have to figure it out for yourself, but I can tell you, you cannot leave your child in public school. Public school, we have been fighting for 75 years to keep communism as far away away from public schools as possible. Now, we failed, but at least they pretended that they cared about children. Now, with communists fully in charge of the federal government, they don't have to care anymore. They don't have to pretend. The gloves are off. They're teaching that whites are evil and bad and that you have to be subservient to blacks. This is not a joke. This is not me dramatizing it. It's real. We have Free homeschool, no-cost homeschool resources. There's a whole bunch of those. Uh, I have links. These are links. And there's Abeka Homeschool, homeschool.com. This is the original homeschooling community. Homeschooling for beginners. Online homeschool alternative programs up through K-12. We have all kinds of sources. Most people have the idea. I don't know that much. I can't, I can't homeschool. You can. You just need the information. You need the data of what you need to teach the children. And then you can give it to them. And it's fairly simple. And I I will be giving you the nuts and bolts of how to do this 
oh, I don't know what show I'm going to be able to do it on. It's Maybe I'll be able to take about 15 minutes next show and give you the nuts and bolts. It's very simple, but you have to follow my directions. And if you don't follow my directions, you're going to end up getting upset and giving up. And you can't do that. If you want to have a future for America, if you want to have a future for your family, you can't leave your children in a public school. You can't do that. When my kid was eight years old, I went and met with the superintendent of schools in the state of California. We talked for about a half an hour. I introduced, you know, at the time they had nothing to do about homeschooling. They didn't have any rules on it, no law on it. They didn't care one way or the other, but they were going, I could see the handwriting on the wall and they were going to have some rules soon. So he goes, look, Mr. Wilson, I know you have a a degree, a teacher's degree. You you go ahead and teach your son. Here, Here, take my card. Go to this address, and you wrote the address down. This is the, this is the teacher's supply house. You can have all, all the equipment you want, and it's free. And the books. We can give you all the books you need. And I said, well, sir, you don't understand. It's not only that I don't like how my child would be taught in the public schools. I don't want him to learn what they're learning in public schools. So I'll be using my own books. I'll be using my own sources. And I did. When I taught my son about World War One and World War Two, I bought a series of books that were printed before and during World War One and World War Two, When I taught him about the Civil War, I bought books that were printed before and during the Civil War and had him read those. And by the time he was 11 years old, he had read Atlas Shrugged, Mein Kampf, the Bible, all the works of Shakespeare, and more. more. Believe me, more. 11 years old. So you can do that. You can instill the seeds of willingness to become educated. And people will do that. Some will, some won't. Hey, if your kid wants to be a wrencher for the rest of his life, there's nothing wrong with that. If he wants to work on cars forever and ever, okay. If you got a, a girl that says, look, all I want to do in life is be a waitress, that's fine. No matter what they want to be, they need to have a good rounding in education, and they are not getting get that in a public school. So I'll have all the links. I'll have everything that I can, but it's up to you to take the reins of responsibility and do this for your child. If you have any questions or problems with this, give us a call. My wife or my son or I will be more than happy to help you. That's why we're here. People think that's hogwash, right? No, that's why we're here. We're here to help you. We've been in business 35 years. And I can tell you now it definitely wasn't because of the money. Now, we're here. we are really here to help people. Go to our website, survivalenterprises.com. SE1, Samuel Edwards, the number one, SE1.us. See if there's something there that uh, you can use. And if you have any questions on that, anything, any of our products, give us a call, 310-295-9686. And remember, we're going to be taking credit cards. So all of you all of you out there who stopped ordering from us because you didn't want to mess around with checks or, or uh, all of that stuff, you just give us a call. Now, I'm going to be uh, heading out of here. You keep your nose in the air and your ear to the ground. Pay attention to what's happening around you. And it's going to be happening fast. All of this is fast. Since the dimwits been in the White House, everything that the communists have been planning for the past 50 years is going to come to fruition. He is doing everything he can to reverse everything that Trump did, including the Iran nuclear deal. He's going to reverse that. Everything that you know and you look at and say, that is evil and stupid, they're going to do. You'd better make sure that you're prepared because nobody's going to know when the Schumer's going to hit the fan or how. I'll see you next week.